evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Johnny Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, takes the stand for the first time in the defamation trial. Because I thought he was joking and slapped me across the face. The Supreme Court launches an investigation into a leaked document revealing a majority of the court is in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. A leak of this magnitude is unprecedented. So what does it mean for the integrity of the court? A former Trump critic wins the Ohio GOP primary after being endorsed by former President Donald Trump. You can't separate his win from the Trump endorsement. The Trump endorsement was critical. The computer repairman who turned over Hunter Biden's laptop files a multi-million dollar defamation lawsuit. He's suing multiple media outlets and a Democratic congressman for accusing him of peddling Russian disinformation. He says the accusations cost him his business. The Federal Reserve ratcheting up its inflation fight today with the biggest rate hike in decades. This as President Biden and Senate Republicans clash over economic policies. What are they saying about the inflation and our economy? Johnny Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, took the stand today for the first time in the trial. She says during their relationship, Depp was constantly drunk or high and that he physically abused her many times. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Be seated. All right. Your next witness. Your Honor, we'd like to call Laura Amber Heard to the stand. Johnny Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, took the stand for the first time in the defamation lawsuit against her. Her lawyer began by asking Heard how she got into the movie business. I went to about 10 auditions sometimes a day and would change clothes if I needed to in the back of, you know, the bus I was taking. And I just hustled from one audition to the other. She met Depp while auditioning for the movie Rum Diary, and he called her a few days after her audition. You know, this like deep voice on the other line. And he said, you got the, you know, you're it, kid. You're the... You're the dream. Hunter wrote this part and you're the dream. You're it, kid. They were both in relationships at the time, but started dating after both of their previous relationships ended. She said her relationship with Depp was good in the beginning, but that Depp would get upset at the clothes she wore to leave the house. And when I brought up the dress and the event, because it was an event to support a charity I was really involved with at the time, and... I said, you, you know, did you see that thing? And he said, yeah, yeah, I think the whole world saw that kid. That's how they'll remember you. That's how the world will remember you. She said it was moments like this when Depp would blow up. Then she recalled the moment when she asked about Depp's tattoo. And I said, what, is it, what does it say? And he um, said it says, why no? It says, why no? And I, um, I didn't see that. I thought he was joking uh, because it didn't look like it said that at all. And I laughed. It was that simple. Um, I, I just laughed because I thought he was joking and slapped me across the face. It is unclear at this time how many days Heard will testify on the witness stand. Depp spent four days on the stand earlier in the trial testifying that he never struck Heard and that she abused him. Jason Perry, NTD News. The Supreme Court yesterday confirmed the authenticity of a leaked draft opinion, which reveals a majority of Supreme Court justices are planning to rule in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. 
This is the first time in the history of the court that a leak of this magnitude has taken place. So what does this mean for the integrity of the United States' highest court? NTD's Grace Coulter spoke with a constitutional scholar to find out. In a Tuesday statement, Chief Justice John Roberts called the leaked draft a betrayal and an egregious breach of trust. Rob Nettleson, a former constitutional law professor, considered one of the top constitutional scholars in the country, says the leak was likely an attack on judicial independence. Most likely, as uh, Alan Dershowitz, noted Harvard professor, has speculated, this came from one of the clerks working for one of the Supreme Court justices. Nettleson says it's of utmost importance that the Supreme Court's deliberations are kept secure to ensure the court isn't influenced by public pressure, threats or lobbying. If their deliberations are out in the open, the court's decisions could be impaired. The attempt to rip open the court's deliberations and expose them to political pressure is very dangerous for the independence of the court. They're the court is designed to serve a very different role from the political branches, and that role is central to our, to our constitutional system. Chief Justice Roberts has said the leaked draft doesn't represent the court's final decision or the final position of any justice. Nettleson says that typically, if Roberts is part of the majority, he will pen the opinion himself. The fact that he assigned it to Justice Alito suggests he's not in the majority. For this reason, according to Nettleson, what Roberts does next is all the more important. Roberts says he's directed the marshal of the Supreme Court to carry out an investigation into the leak. Nettleson says the investigation is important, but that it alone won't be sufficient to protect the integrity of the court. It also has to be very clear that this obvious attempt to subject the court to lobbying or to pressure or to intimidation uh, is rejected. So the investigation is important but also the court's other conduct in the next few days is important. Um, I agree with one commentator who suggested that not only should uh, Chief Justice Roberts join the majority at this point, but that the court should also issue its decision now to end any speculation that the court is going to be manipulated by this kind of conduct. Roberts says the attempt to undermine the integrity of the court will not succeed adding that the work of the court will not be affected in any way. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. In the wake of the Supreme Court draft leak, we've seen protests, a plea from the president, new plans from progressive Democrats, and even Amazon taking action. Why was it leaked, and what could this mean for the midterms? I spoke with Turning Point USA contributor and host of Human Events Daily, Jack Posobiec, to hear his take. Turning Point USA contributor and host of Human Events Daily, Jack Basobic. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. The draft Supreme Court opinion leak and is huge in the press right now. A leak like that is unprecedented. Why do you think it was leaked? Why this case? Well, I think it's very clear what's going on here. You've got someone most likely, and I've been talking to my sources in and around the court about this, who's most likely a liberal clerk um, who's up for one of these positions. Now, keep in mind that... Uh, the universe of people that have access to these draft opinions is actually quite small. Many of them you know, are using court-issued devices for these communications. Um, these are kept under lock and key. This is not something the Supreme Court has known 
uh, for being one of the most secretive institutions in Washington, D.C. I mean, even the intel community leaks more than the Supreme Court does. So this is, of course, those are, you know, targeted leaks. This is very unprecedented. But we think, or at least the leading analysis or leading hypothesis at this point, that this is someone who probably knew that they were going to be caught, but did so for ideological reasons because they were so upset at what looks like to be a potential and likely at this point overturning of Roe v. Wade, the decision that was made in 1973. What could this leak mean for the Supreme Court going forward? Well, going forward, it becomes a huge problem for the Supreme Court because it kind of puts them in a bind because the reporting says that five justices are currently for this thing. So out of nine, obviously five would be the majority. That means Roe v. Wade is done and Casey along with it, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But if one of those number were to change, if this were suddenly to become four to five the other way, it only take one justice to do that, that would then be the perception that this leak influenced not only a massive backlash in terms of this leftist and Antifa and BLM uh, network activation that we're seeing now obviously being done to coincide with uh, the shift into the midterm season, but it would show that the credibility of the court of the institution was at fault, which would mean essentially a decimation of their credibility because it would show that they are not there reading the law, discussing this and trying to figure out what is truly constitutional, right? This idea of constitutional review of law, but instead that the court is malleable by the whims of public opinion. Of course, this would forever tarnish the legacy and the credibility of the Supreme Court as an institution. What's the outlook for America going forward? Well, I think the United States is at a critical moment. Um, I think when you look in, the, in terms of the United States economically, the outlook is not good. I do think that going forward, even though um, certainly Joe Biden and the Democrats are trying, the pro-abortion Democrats are trying to turn this into the issue of midterms, um, they, it, at the end of the day, people are going to be affected far more on a day-to-day -day basis by the gas prices, by their food prices going up, diesel's going up right now. So that, of course, is going to affect everything that is shipped across this country by our truckers, our great truckers. And so those are the things that people are going to vote on. It's those kitchen table issues, those pocketbook issues, and you are going to see a massive red wave in November because of it. Jack Basobic, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. In Ohio's primary elections on Tuesday, J.D. Vance won a tight race for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate with a little help from Donald Trump. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Trailing in the polls until just a few weeks ago, J.D. Vance edged out his opponents in the Republican primary after a much-needed endorsement from former President Donald Trump. Noah Weinrich of Heritage Action says you can't separate the win from the Trump endorsement. The Trump endorsement was critical. Weinrich said Vance never cracked first behind opponents Josh Mandel and Mike Gibbons until after the endorsement. He said Ohio voters who still showed skepticism over his previous negative comments about Trump in 2016 were also convinced to vote for him. Weinrich also thinks Vance had the strongest platform. He was incredibly strong on illegal immigration. Um, he was, he's tremendously strong on China. You know, he has a very compelling personal story that resonates with Ohioans. Um, it's documented in his book, Hillbilly Elegy. Other issues Vance addressed were traditional values and families and ending abortion. 
Vance will go up against Democratic primary winner Tim Ryan, the current state representative. Ryan's platform includes investing in affordable health care, ending racial disparities, and modernizing the immigration system. Weinrich said both are good picks for their respective parties, but Vance will likely take working-class voters away from Ryan and win the race. Meanwhile, Georgia's GOP Senate candidate Herschel Walker didn't attend the primary debate. Will that affect his chances of winning? He was an early supporter of President Trump. President Trump has endorsed him. No other candidate has really been able to break out. Um, and his, you know, from the beginning, Herschel was the guy to beat. This year's midterm election is predicted to be a tough one for Democrats trying to hold on to their majority in the House and control of the Senate. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The computer repairman who turned over Hunter Biden's laptop has filed a multi-million dollar defamation lawsuit. The Delaware repairman is suing multiple media outlets and Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff for accusing him of peddling Russian disinformation. John Paul Mac Isaac filed the suit Tuesday. Defendants include CNN, The Daily Beast and Politico. He argues that the false accusations cost him his repair business, which he was forced to close due to ongoing threats. Speaking with the New York Post, Mac Isaac said he wants the country to know there was an orchestrated effort to block the story of the laptop. Mac Isaac came to legally own the laptop after Hunter Biden dropped it off for repair and never returned. The laptop contained details about Hunter's shady business dealings, which appear to involve his father. Hunter is currently under federal investigation. What's the state of our economy? President Biden today touts progress while Republicans don't seem to agree. Plus, the Federal Reserve's biggest move in decades to fight red-hot inflation. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Addressing the state of the economy, President Biden on Wednesday touted deficit reduction as a way to fight soaring inflation. Why is it important? Because bringing down the deficit is one way to ease inflationary pressures in an economy where a consequence of a war and gas prices and oil and food and it all, it's a different world right this moment. The remarks came amid growing dismay over inflation before the midterm elections. And Biden wasted no time taking aim at Republicans and his predecessor. Let me remind you again, I reduced the federal deficit. All the talk about the deficit from my Republican friends, I love it. Biden said the government will pay down the national debt for the first time in six years. But the reason for the smaller deficits is a matter of debate. As many COVID-era programs end, the federal government is expected to spend less. All evidence seemed to suggest... And Republicans were quick to fire back, gathering within an hour of Biden's remarks to challenge what they call the Biden economy. That it's going from bad to worse. And they seem to care more about gas prices going up than about federal deficits going down. The biggest drag on the U.S. economy right now involves the rising energy costs. And this is purely a self-inflicted wound by the Biden administration. That's as Texas Senator Ted Cruz projects the economy's impact on the upcoming elections. Blue-collar union members, suburban moms, all of them are moving Republican. It's why in November we're going to see South Texas turn red. All this unfolds as the country's central bank deploys the most aggressive policy in decades because... Inflation is much too high. 
The agency raised its interest rate by half a percentage point, its largest hike since 2000. It aims to make people spend less and ease inflation by making it more expensive to borrow money. So yes, there, there may be some pain associated with getting back to that, but you know, the, the big pain is in not dealing over time, is in not dealing with inflation and allowing it to become entrenched. And we're going to see the latest inflation data as soon as next week, as the Labor Department is set to release the April Consumer Price Index report on May 11th. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Up next, New York's governor tells abortion critics not to mess with New York. The state is considering paying for abortions for any U.S. resident. And Elon Musk responds to left-wing groups' call to boycott Twitter. Two dozen left-wing groups claim that Twitter under Musk will be a platform that amplifies hate, extremism and disinformation. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. New York State is taking a distinct pro-abortion stance. The governor and the attorney general want to make clear that they're against overturning Roe v. Wade. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from New York. Amid the ongoing Roe v. Wade issue, New York's attorney general revealed that she herself had an abortion about 20 years ago. And Governor Kathy Hochul is trying to make New York the nation's safe haven for abortions. She had a message to those opposing the procedure. You don't want to mess with us. You don't want to mess with the state of New York. And I assure you, this is a fight that you will not win. New York State is currently considering two pieces of legislation. Abortions for out-of-state residents paid by New York State and requiring New York insurance companies to pay for abortions. The governor says the right to get an abortion is something her ancestors already fought for and she doesn't want her grandchildren to have to fight for that as well. She says banning abortions is going backwards. But one expert says using taxpayer money for abortions is a bold idea. Well, there's been a long-term agreement, at least at the federal level, even among people that uh, are pro-choice, that it's a different step to have taxpayer money fund abortion simply because the American public has not agreed on that and many people consider abortion to be a moral evil. Jay Richards is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He says it's surprising how many Catholic politicians support abortion. Whether you're talking about Nancy Pelosi, whether you're talking about the governor of New York, whether you're talking about the president of the United States, Joe Biden, these are all Catholics. These are all people that know exactly what the church teaches on abortion. He added that paying for abortions for out-of-state residents would be too expensive, and he doesn't think New York is really going to do that. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. 100,000 school kids in New York City did not have a home last year. That's according to an analysis of state data. Now, some city council members want kids living in homeless shelters to get help. 
from the city. Out of the 100,000 homeless kids, around 30,000 live in homeless shelters. That's according to the New York Post, which obtained a letter from city council members to the chancellor of the city's Department of Education. Some council members are asking the chancellor to hire 150 staffers to be placed at homeless shelters. They could help kids get to school if the bus isn't coming, or get them clothes if they don't have any. That's so the kids don't miss school. The letter also reportedly acknowledges that these kids shouldn't be homeless in the first place. Democratic lawmakers from 16 states are pledging to introduce legislation that would protect transgender youth and their families from what they consider strict laws. The states joined California, New York and Minnesota in their response to a number of Republican bills that would prohibit gender transitioning or gender reassignment procedures for minors. Alabama and Texas passed laws last year that banned such procedures. Some of the prohibited treatments are surgeries that sterilize minors by castration or vasectomy. Also included are puberty-blocking medication and hormonal treatments. California State Senator Scott Weiner sponsored a bill that would, among other things, prevent courts in other states from separating transgender children from their parents if the parents allow gender transitioning treatments. The bill is serving as a template for other states. Parents in Pennsylvania are outraged over an after-school sexual dance performance involving adult men in drag. An investigation is now being launched by the school district. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. A staff member at Hempfield High School in Pennsylvania has been placed on administrative leave for organizing this performance, a sexually suggestive drag queen dance show at the school last Monday. Parents say they were neither informed nor asked for their permission. This video of the performance was posted online. We've blurred it due to the dancers' scan outfits, which include spandex thongs. Not only were the adult male drag queens dancing provocatively with their buttocks showing, students were also urged to bring tip money. The performance was hosted by the Gay Sexuality Alliance Club of the Hempfield School District. It was reportedly held right after school at 3 p.m. and all students were invited to attend. After parent outrage, the school district issued an apology, saying they do not condone this type of activity in their schools. The district says they've launched an investigation to hold those involved accountable. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And according to an Epic Times report, parents are predicting a full house at next week's school board meeting. They want to know if the drag queens were paid and if they completed child abuse background checks as required by state law for anyone working with minors. And Elon Musk appears to be calling for an investigation into left-wing organizations that are pressuring companies to boycott Twitter. The groups are calling for a boycott if Musk changes Twitter's content moderation policies after his purchase. NTD's Allison Lee has more. About two dozen left-wing groups, including Black Lives Matter Network Foundation, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, and Women's March, reportedly sent letters to top advertisers on Twitter, such as Coca-Cola, Kraft, and Disney. The groups wrote in their letter, under Musk's management, Twitter risks becoming a cesspool of misinformation. The groups are asking the companies to agree to certain standards if they want to keep advertising on Twitter. These include keeping the accounts of public figures who are banned for violating Twitter rules off the platform. 
Musk responded to the letter in a tweet on Tuesday saying, who funds these organizations that want to control your access to information? Let's investigate. And I wonder if those funding these organizations are fully aware of what the organizations are doing. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. IBM has filed a lawsuit against a popular online gaming company for alleged patent rights violations. According to the federal lawsuit made public Tuesday, IBM is claiming that Zynga and its subsidiary Chartboost have been using IBM's prior ideas in big data, analytics, and online advertising without permission. The lawsuit states Zynga is one of the world's largest providers of social games and is making billions of dollars in revenue from users and daily mobile downloads. IBM is seeking compensation for damages as well as injunctive relief to bar Zynga and Chartboost from further violations. Reuters reports that neither Zynga nor Chartboost has immediately responded to requests for comment on the lawsuit. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The NBA playoffs continue tonight with a pair of Game 2s. First, the Heat hosts the Sixers as Philly looks to avoid going down 0-2. Sixers coach Doc Rivers said Joel Embiid is feeling a lot better, but is still ruled out for tonight's contest. The MVP candidate is still out with a facial fracture and concussion suffered in last Thursday's win over Toronto. Meanwhile, the Heat are banged up themselves with Kyle Lowry out with hamstring strain and five others listed as questionable, including newly minted sixth man of the year Tyler Hero. Out in Phoenix, the Suns are looking to go up 2-0 over the Mavs. Although Dallas star Luka Doncic ripped Phoenix's defense apart for 45 points in the opener, it wasn't enough as Phoenix held on. Suns guard Devin Booker made a remarkable return from a hamstring strain last week, setting out just nine days, but has struggled shooting since, hitting just two of 11 threes. In NFL news, the league has announced they'll be playing their first ever game in Germany this November. And none other than Tom Brady and the Buccaneers will be there to play it, taking on the Seattle Seahawks at Allianz Arena. Should Brady start, he'd be the first to do so in three foreign countries, having previously started in London and Mexico City. London will get three more NFL games this year, with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers making their first trip overseas as part of them. Mexico City, meanwhile, will get another game as the Niners and Cardinals will square off there on November 21st. In international sports, Diego Maradona's Hand of God jersey sold for a whopping $9.3 million, according to Sotheby's. Maradona wore the jersey when he scored one of the most famous goals ever. It happened at the 1986 World Cup. That's when Maradona jumped and used his fist to hit the ball in for a goal, though from behind it looked like it was his head. The goal was somehow allowed. Maradona would say afterwards, it was the hand of God that hit it in. Just a few minutes later in the same match, he wowed the crowd by picking up the ball at midfield and eluded five defenders to score again. Years later, the goal was voted as the World Cup Goal of the Century. And finally, in news of good sportsmanship, Mets pitcher Chris Bassett and home plate umpire Chad Fairchild apologized to each other Monday in a display rarely seen on the baseball diamond. Fairchild missed what looked like a strike three to end the fifth inning and called it a ball instead. Bassett and his teammates, on the other hand, were convinced it was a strike and actually started walking to the dugout before the call was made. Bassett would eventually walk the batter but got out of the inning unscathed. On his way to the dugout, the umpire made eye contact and tapped his chest as if to say, my mistake. 
Bassett said afterwards he also apologized to Fairchild for his initial reaction of, quote, showing him up. That's all for sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, murder charges against three suspects involved in the Northern California gang shooting last month. Only two of the suspects are in jail. Police are searching for the third. And the nation's first town chartered by African Americans faces an uncertain future. The town's geography causes it to flood easily, and there's no easy fix to the problem. Learn more in just a minute here on NTD News. Suspects in the gang-related shooting that left six dead in Sacramento last month have been charged with murder. But one of the suspects is still on the run. NTD's Eileen Ang has the details on the sentences. Sacramento District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert announced on Tuesday murder charges for three suspects involved in the downtown Sacramento rival gang shooting. The charges today that have been filed in arrest warrants issued, a judge signed those arrest warrants, involve Smiley Martin, Dondre Martin, and Matula Payton. The three men are now facing murder charges for the early morning shooting on April 3rd. All participants in this incident, the surviving ones, the Martin brothers and Matula Payton, are charged with all of the deaths of those innocent bystanders. That is what we have today. Those are the charges. The investigation continues. The shooting left six people dead and 12 wounded outside bars just blocks away from California's capital. Gang and gun violence are rare on this scale and rare on downtown streets, but violence is far too common in many of our neighborhoods. Smiley Martin, one of the brothers involved in the shooting, was freed from prison a few months before and again last year. He's described as a dangerous, remorseless gang member in court documents. We know that a small number of criminals can inflict huge suffering, including repeat offenders, gang members, and people willing to resort to violence to resolve differences. Guns and gangs are fully entrenched in this. Addressing urban violence needs to be a community effort and requires partnerships at every level. Police have identified a total of four people involved in the shooting. The Martin brothers are in jail. One died during the shooting, and Peyton's whereabouts are unknown. Police believe at least five shooters were involved. The brothers are scheduled to return to court on May 27th. A man is in custody after allegedly attacking comedian Dave Chappelle on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. The Los Angeles Police Department says the incident happened Tuesday night during the Netflix is a Joke Festival currently going on in L.A. A video posted on social media shows an individual rushing the stage and tackling Chappelle. Security guards then chased and overpowered the attacker, who was later taken away in an ambulance. Reports say that actor Jamie Foxx, who was watching the show, ran on stage to help. Officers say that the alleged attacker, Isaiah Lee, was detained and arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. He was apparently carrying a fake gun with a knife blade hidden inside. But it's unclear if the suspect tried to use the weapon. Nearly two dozen firefighter crews gathered in Paynes Creek, California this week for an annual conservation camp preparedness exercise. 
The three-day training event is hosted by the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. During the event, crews arrive on site and immediately face inspection as they collect their gear and face questions on firefighting techniques, tools, and more. It's important because the crews actually, they do need to be proficient in their skills um, for various reasons. They need to be in shape. They need to be um, able to use their tools successfully and uh, basically know, know their job. During inspection, firefighters simulate air tanker drops, which are frequently used during wildfires. Officials also inspect the fire shelters used, which are then deployed as part of the training. Firefighters then embark on a timed three-mile hike. After the trek, they're instructed to cut a 300-foot line on a hillside. Line cutting is a firefighting practice designed to create a perimeter around the fire to contain it. Factors for determining the size of the line include fuels and weather. Misty Calvo is in her second year as a firefighter. Um, with what, how we got critiqued and just from what our superior said, uh, feeling pretty good. We didn't have any deductions, so feeling good about this fire season. Going in, feeling prepared and ready, knowing that we can do our job uh, to the best of our abilities. She was assigned to scrapes, cleaning up the line, and removing all debris toward the back of the line. We got good kudos. Um, they said our line looked good. It was clean. We had no deductions on our line, so that's always a great positive, knowing that you know we're training well, and you know when we get out there, knowing that we're putting out good line, and um, the hike went grow. Uh, we all did good. We all stayed together, and you know pushed each other, motivated each other. California's wildfires are as destructive as ever. The past two years have seen the biggest wildfires in state history. In 2020, the August Complex fire consumed more than 1 million acres, and in 2021, the Dixie Fire burned more than 963,000 acres. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And new details emerging in the manhunt for an Alabama inmate accused of murder and the corrections officer who allegedly helped him escape. Authorities now believe that Vicki White not only aided the escape, but was involved in a romantic relationship with the accused killer. Mike Valerio has the latest information on the investigation. It's just really uh, a shock and, and devastating to all of her co-workers and to myself. Investigators say they've uncovered a secret romantic relationship between the otherwise exemplary Alabama corrections officer and the accused murderer they say she helped break out of prison. She sold her soul to the devil. Lauderdale County Sheriff Rick Singleton says Vicki White and Casey White, no relation, likely met when Casey stayed in the Lauderdale County Jail while waiting for his arraignment back in 2020. We know that they maintained contact while he was in the Department of Corrections up to and including until he was returned here February 25th of this year. And authorities say they are learning more about the preparations for the escape. Vicki White recently sold her Lauderdale County home for less than half its market value and purchased this 2007 Ford Edge SUV. She staged the vehicle in the parking lot where her patrol car was found the night before their disappearance. Last Friday, Vicki told her co-worker she was taking the inmate to the county courthouse for a mental health evaluation, but no evaluation was ever scheduled and the pair has now vanished. Several hours later, Vicki White's patrol car was found abandoned in a shopping center parking lot just one mile away from the detention facility. Vicki, you've been in this business for 17 years. You've seen this scenario play out more than once and you know how it always ends. 
the historic town of Princeville, North Carolina, faces an uncertain and stormy future. The town is situated on a swampland, and rising water levels flood the town from time to time. Many residents have left, while others decided to stay. Here are the details. The historic town of Princeville, North Carolina, has a population of about 1,200. The settlement grew up around a Union Army camp on the south bank of the Tar River, where escaped slaves sought protection in the waning days of the Civil War. It is the oldest town in the nation chartered by African Americans. Our forefathers built a town out of absolutely nothing but swampland. Uh, they shed their blood, sweat, and tears on these sacred grounds. It was absolutely worthless. Nobody wanted it. Nobody see, could see anything positive for the future of the, the swampland. Because of its geography, the town faces an existential threat every time the Tar River floods, despite construction of a massive levee in the 1960s. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Wilmington District is currently responsible for flood control in Princeville. When it floods and the water level rises and starts to come over the bank, the water wants to go somewhere, and it wants to naturally go where the town of Princeville currently exists. In 2019, Congress authorized nearly $40 million to fund the Princeville flood protection upgrades. But updated computer modeling show that the Princeville plan would have created flooding issues in other areas. We said, hey, we need to look at that. We need to come up with a, a better design or see what we could do uh, to try and uh, make sure that we can still protect the citizens of Princeville without creating uh, unintended consequences elsewhere. The town's population has declined sharply compared to a decade earlier. The government has purchased about two dozen flood-prone properties for demolition, with more buyouts pending. But many long-term residents say they would rather stay. Actually, it was the love for Princeville, for the town itself, my roots. 74-year-old Princeville resident Betty Cobb has had her home twice destroyed by floods. She says right now she and her family are living on chance and prayer. Coming up, Beijing and another major Chinese city are imposing strict lockdown measures. The Chinese capital city has closed dozens of subway stations and many public venues. And Europe plans to ban Russian oil over the war in Ukraine. But it'll be tough because the EU is very reliant on Russian energy. More in a moment here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. In Beijing, public transit is largely halted due to the tightened COVID curb. Meanwhile, another megacity, people are buying in panic, preparing for coming lockdowns. NTD's Tiffany Meyer brings us the updates. China's capital city closed scores of subway stations and bus routes on Wednesday. Officials also extended COVID-19 curbs on many public venues. According to the city's service provider, more than 60 subway stations and nearly 160 bus routes were shut down. 
Officials also said they'd extend closures for certain public places, like schools, restaurants, some businesses, and even residential buildings. But they didn't give a time frame. This is becoming too much to bear for some. A woman is in tears as she voices her dissatisfaction with the restrictions. With dozens of new cases a day, Beijing is mass testing its residents for the infection, hoping to find and isolate the virus before it spreads. This week, 12 out of the city's 16 districts held a second round of tests, with one more still to come. Restrictions in Beijing are very severe. I can't even go eat anywhere. I feel oppressed. I did the PRC test every day and I know that I am not sick. I did not get infected, but I still feel caged like I was sick. I feel these restrictions are excessive. They make people agitated. They can't bear it. At the same time, the city plans to cut down the time people spend in quarantine facilities when they arrive from overseas, from 14 days down to 10 days. That's according to what an official said Wednesday. But foreign arrivals will still need to isolate at home for seven days afterward. Beyond Beijing, other Chinese cities are also making adjustments to their COVID-19 curbs. According to an official statement from Tuesday, central China's Zhenzhou city will impose new week-long rules. Schools in the main city district will shift their classes online, while staff with the local government and nearby companies must work from home. It's not certain whether the restrictions will lift after one week. Zhenzhou is home to over 12 million people. It's also the site for Apple's iPhone manufacturer, Taiwan's Foxconn. The company confirmed it would continue production there. As companies and public services adjust to the changes, residents quickly responded to the news. The day the notice was released, locals packed the streets. Crowds were seen rushing to grocery stores to stock up on essentials for while they're working remotely. This is the first time since last summer Jinzhou has caught the public eye. That's after last year when severe flooding hit the area. The European Commission is now proposing a ban on Russian oil. It's part of a new set of measures aimed at punishing Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Even Germany, Europe's largest economy and one of the most dependent on Russia, has signed on. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. We will propose to ban all Russian oil from Europe. This will be... The European Union, which has been heavily reliant on Russian oil, is now going for a full, complete ban, and even Germany has joined in. We have prepared ourselves uh, to be uh, less dependent. The proposal, part of a sixth round of sanctions, involves a ban of crude imports within six months and a ban on refined oil by the end of the year. Time is critical, so we should better act faster here. George Zachman is a senior fellow at think tank Bruegel. Zachman says Russia will have the 
the opportunity to look for other ways to export its oil. If we give them six to, uh, to, to n months to prepare, that will of course allow them to find new ways to, to sell oil to non-embargoing countries. Experts say an oil ban is relatively easy to offset because the EU can just get the oil from other places. It can import from numerous different producers from uh, Norway, the North Sea in general, uh, from the United States and many other suppliers. So that is relatively easy. Daniel Lacaille is the author of The Energy World is Flat. Lacaille says the EU's real problem is natural gas. The European Union imports about 150 BCM per year of natural gas from Russia. Those imports are essential for numerous economies and it's very difficult to substitute them with other sources. Russia's natural gas makes up around 40% of the EU's imports, and it's not as easy to ship as oil is. The sixth round of sanctions also include taking Russia's largest bank out of the SWIFT system and holding Russian military officers responsible for war crimes. All 27 EU countries must agree in order for the sanctions to be imposed. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, a family boutique celebrates 100 years in business. What's its secret to thriving for a century? And traditional pottery in Morocco. It may soon be classed as an intangible cultural heritage. We look at why. More on that here on NTD News. Running a brick-and-mortar clothing store is not easy. Many of these stores have either been crushed by competition from e-commerce or shuttered by the pandemic. But one family-owned boutique in Illinois is still standing tall and is celebrating its 100-year anniversary. NTD's Faye Quarter has the story. The same family has owned the Lake Forest Shop, a luxury boutique in Lake Forest, Illinois, for three generations. The store has weathered the storms of the past century and is thriving. Ellen Sterling, the owner of the store, fondly recounts how her grandmother, Margaret Baxter Foster, started the business. She was a woman who uh, loved to shop. She met this woman named Coco Chanel, and she fell in love with Coco and the clothes. So she bought and bought and bought. The buying spree went on repeatedly until the clothes couldn't fit in the closet. Foster opened a store to sell them. With the help of her famous son-in-law, Condé Nast, the publisher of Vogue, the shop flourished. He was able to introduce my grandmother to a lot of designers, a lot of people that could be helpful to her. Sterling's parents expanded the business to four branches, but the expansion backfired. When Sterling took over in 1986, the store was $500,000 in debt. Sterling closed all the other branches except the original store and made drastic changes. We went on a search for really fine designers that we think our customers would like. And then we had trunk shows with them. The trunk show allows customers to see samples of a designer's whole collection and customize clothing for individual sizes and colors. The shop carries luxury brands such as Lourdes Chavez and Algo of Switzerland, who outfits Duchess Kate and others. Today, the store has an annual revenue of $2 million. 
Sterling credits her success to her employees and their taste in style. They are absolutely superb women, superb professionals, and there is anything they won't do for you. At 72, Sterling is making plans for the store's future because none of her children are interested in taking over. Faye Quarter, NTD News. The Moroccan city of Safi is famed for its traditional pottery. The city may soon have its ceramic skills classified as an intangible cultural heritage. Here are the details. The Moroccan city of Safi is celebrated for its colorful ceramics. One shopkeeper says it's the quality of the craftsmanship that makes Safi's ceramics special. The city of Safi is characterized by traditional and modern pottery, characterized by high quality. That's why there is a great demand from people who want to purchase this product. Having inherited the traditions from nine generations, Mohamed Ribati has worked as a potter since 1972. Many artisans like Ribati shun modern techniques and technology in favor of traditional methods. We as potters in Safi are proud because we still adhere to the traditional and simple ways of working and this method we inherited from our ancestors. And despite the fact that we are in the era of technology, but people always encourage these traditional ways of working, whether in the matter of kneading clay or mixing colors. However, this means that they can't compete on price with cheaper imitations. The clay around Safi is silky and rich in iron oxide, which creates a texture that gives metallic reflections to the pottery. The clay is put into water and left for 48 hours to become a paste. Then it's kneaded by foot on a sunny terrace and left for another day to dry in slabs. Each month he produces between 600 and 1,200 pieces, with 800 pieces exported around the world, including France, the UK and Germany. The prices of the items can vary enormously, from just over a dollar to over $50,000. The government now hopes to submit an application to UNESCO to consider the ceramic skills of Safi as an intangible cultural heritage at some point in the future. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.